From Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, hear now God's word. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. I have said what I'm about to say many times. I've said it in private. I've said it publicly. That the diligent, self-conscious study and application of Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in verse 25, through the end of this epistle, would radically change and improve every marriage and every family. That is the prescription from this pastor. But rather than take this counsel seriously, many will stay in their cycle of conflict year after year, generation after generation, refusing to listen to the Word of God. They will complain of their struggles, but refuse the remedy. I don't know how else to say it, but I'll try to say it again this morning. William Still wrote a book titled The Work of the Pastor, and in it he says this, All that many spiritually sick people need is a good balanced diet and a disciplined routine. My principal or primary surgery, clinic, vestry hour, counseling room, call it what you will, is the pulpit. If in the end I cannot get people to see this, I despair of them ever becoming what Christ means them to be. And they will certainly never become the satisfied, happy, and more important, useful people that they could be. The Apostle Paul is doing this very thing in this epistle. I, too, by expounding upon his words and providing a group counseling session on a variety of topics. Today's topic is anger. What does God say about anger, and what does he expect from you and me? The old man had his way of dealing with anger. Now the new man in Christ has a very different way of dealing with anger. Now while sin is always wrong in and of itself, it, is, it also always destroys communion. And communion, remember, is the goal. It's why God created us, that we might have communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who have an eternal communion of love. And now He was going to expand that in the creation of man and woman. And He told them to be fruitful and 
multiply and fill the earth with more God-glorifying members of that communion. That's what our families are to be. That's what our churches are to be. Communion here at home and ultimately in the world. And like lying, anger is a very common source of sin and a disruptor of that communion. Now the goal here is not simply to learn how to suppress our anger, but rather how to be angry and not sin. Sometimes anger is called for. In fact, I will argue that it's sometimes necessary. Sometimes we're angry when we shouldn't be angry. And sometimes it's appropriate to be angry, but we are expressing that anger in sinful ways. And so let us begin with this rather odd command, be angry. This tells us something important. There is a certain kind of anger that is right, that is not sinful at all. God made us in his image, and anger is one of the capacities that he gave us, and he gave it to us for his glory. There are some things that should anger you. But like all of God's gifts, anger must be controlled. It must be used for the glory of God. We see that in the Lord himself, because he was sometimes angry. When the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus over whether or not it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, we read this in Mark 3, 5, And when he had looked around at them with anger being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. So this grief over them produced anger in him. In John 2, 14 and 15, and then there's this famous incident that we all know about in the temple. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers' money and overturned the tables. The righteous indignation and anger of Jesus was powerfully demonstrated on that day. And we also see repeatedly in the Old and the New Testaments descriptions of the wrath of God. For the wrath of God, we read in Romans 1.18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Both Jesus and John the Baptist warned people to flee the wrath to come. And John describes what's going on when in, when in Jerusalem, when Jerusalem is being destroyed in Revelation 6.17, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Like God, we should always be angry about evil. As Psalms 97.10 puts it, You who love the Lord hate evil. And so we may not be complacent about sin. It would be a sin not to be angry when we should be angry. But we have an example of, of biblical anger which included Paul's confronting Peter because of his wrong example in Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, 11 through 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed for before certain men came, 
came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Paul was angry about that. Another example is David, King David, being upset. You remember when Nathan the prophet told him the story about the man's little ewe lamb being stolen. David was outraged. David was furious. David was angry. And then then Nathan looked at David and said, that's you. You want to be angry at somebody? Be angry at yourself. Aristotle made this observation. Anybody can become angry. That is easy. But But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power to do uh, power and is not easy. So Paul adds, be angry and do not sin. There's the qualifier. There was a pastor who was building a trellis for his roses and a young boy was watching him do this for a very long time. And the pastor asked the boy, are you watching me so that you can learn how to build a trellis? And the boy replied, no, I just wanted to know what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. We've seen that there is a right kind of anger, but of course there are also sinful kinds of anger. Anger is like fire. It can be used for heating and cooking or it can burn the house down. Paul has already told us previously in this chapter to speak the truth in love. And sometimes people emphasize, uh, some emphasize the need for truth, while others want to put all the emphasis on love. But the Bible emphasizes the need for both. Likewise with anger. Be angry and do not sin. And so it is possible for a man to be angry and not sin, but the fact that this warning comes so quickly and closely behind the permission to be angry tells us that it's very easy to cross that line. Remember the story of the jealousy of Cain toward Abel when Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, but Cain's wasn't? God knew that Cain was angry. Cain was angry with Abel when he should have been angry with himself. God also knew what would happen if Cain kept that anger brewing inside of him. As long as Cain harbored that anger within him, the time was going to come when he would have the opportunity to vent that anger. And before that happened, rather than allowing his anger to master him, God told him, you better master it. Otherwise, it's like a tiger that's about to pounce on you. Unfortunately, Cain did allow the sin to master him, and he killed his brother. You see, we need to be careful about harboring anger within ourselves. It becomes like a cancer that eats at us until we're consumed, and we no longer control it. It controls us. Anger and angry words not only impact others, they also do damage to the one who's angry. C.S. Lewis said this, 
in mere Christianity. One man may be so placed that his anger sheds the blood of thousands. And another so placed that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. But the little mark on the soul may be much the same in both. Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents will make it harder for him to keep out the rage next time he's tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central man straightened out again. Each is in the long run doomed if he will not. The bigness or smallness of the thing seen from the outside is not what really matters. Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's twelve sons, became enraged when their sister Diana was raped by a man in Shechem. Their moral indignation was justified. But they responded with such unrestrained anger. They lied, they plundered an entire city, they brutally killed every man, male in that city, and they dishonored God by not seeking His counsel and determining from Him what their response should be. And Jacob later denounced their behavior, saying in Genesis 49-7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. Now, Dr. J. Adams, who has influenced me greatly uh, in his instruction on counseling, made this observation. He says, righteous anger can become unrighteous anger in two ways. First, by the ventilation of anger, and second, by the internalization of anger. These two opposite extremes are known more popularly as blowing up or clamming up. In both cases, the emotional energies of anger are wasted. In both, they are used destructively. In neither instance are they used constructively to solve problems. And so, the Bible is explicit about blowing up. That's the one we think of. We think, he's really angry. Okay? So let me just quickly read a few Proverbs. 29.11, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. 25.28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. 19.11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 29.22, an angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. But on the other side, sometimes the the more quiet type, the ones who've clammed up, think, well, I don't really have an anger problem, but you do. Clamming up is another sinful means of expressing anger. Yes, it is a means of expressing anger. Pouting. What's wrong? Nothing. No, that was a lie. Now you've added lying to anger. No, what's wrong? Nothing. So we ask you ten more times what's wrong. And then you blow up. Adam says, One who harbors resentments within but acts as if nothing is wrong lies and does not speak the truth with his neighbor. 
Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, you see, self-deception is often a problem. I'm not mad. I'm just hurt. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this, Many become defiled. An angry attitude. That's anger. That's sinful anger. So there are wrong ways to be angry. Disputes would be way more profitable if people would control the passion of anger. Harsh and irrational things get said. Conflict is escalated. And it makes conflict resolution more difficult than it should be. Galatians 5, 14 and 15, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Several more Proverbs address this issue. I suggest, if you have any anger problem whatsoever, uh, in addition to the prescription of Ephesians 4, I would add to that that you take two of these every day. Proverbs 16:32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. 15:18, a wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allies allays uh, contention. 14:29, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. 17, 27, and 28. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. And so the world is full of actions and reactions. God calls us, his people, to represent him with both. And since our words are part of our actions, they must represent him as well. Reactions are responses to what has been said or done either to us or around us. Reactions involve our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior, our body language, our words. All of these are to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. There is a time and a place for angry words. However, they're probably not called for as often as we use them. When something's on fire or in danger of combustion, throwing gas on it is not wise, even if it's tempting. Godly maturity calls for turning the temperature down. And the right words at the right time can go far to accomplish good things. Just as we may not be thieves or adulterers, neither may we be ill-tempered people. New men in Christ are not grumpy and irritable. Someone protests, but I was born with a bad temperament. Yeah, but if you're a Christian, you've been born again, and so that argument's out the window. Love is about self-sacrifice for others. Because we love our families and our brothers and our sisters in Christ and our neighbors, 
Therefore, we should not be easily provoked, because why? Love is not easily provoked. And thus we are long-suffering, patient. In some families, expressions of anger are common, and they become part of the system. This is sometimes passed down for generations, the sins of the fathers visiting multiple generations, but this is no excuse. It's true that some people are more inclined to one sin over another, but it never ceases to be sin. And if it's a sin, it must be repented of. And if it's a sin, it can be overcome by the grace of God and the power and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, it will be much easier for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren to not be so plagued with this bitter fruit of anger. Anger does both short-term and long-term damage. John Piper said, Anger can see the day after, can see the day after day, week after week, year after year, and, and come out in so many uh, oblique expressions of demeaning behavior, neglect, and lack of attention that I think it can undermine a relationship more subtly and with more long-term damage than the dragon of lust can. A hair trigger will always get you in trouble. James warns, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we lose our temper, we inevitably lose our wisdom. James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and willing to yield. When our temper is lost, we're out of control, and that's always a sin. And when we're out of control, that gives the devil an opportunity to be in control. And that's why Paul adds... Don't give a place for the devil. Rage opens the door to all kinds of trouble. I'm thankful, largely to my father, that I don't have much of a temper, but I have lost my temper. And I will tell you this, I regret every single time that I have. Things get said and done that shouldn't have. And while there can be forgiveness, often permanent damage is done. Some of you heard me illustrate this. I think this came from Jay Adams as well. If you have a beautiful piece of furniture and your four-year-old drives a 16-penny nail on the top of it, after you deal with him and you pull the nail out, you can get it repaired. Maybe somebody's really good. They match the putty, the color, and they fix that hole. Maybe nobody else notices it. But guess where your eyes go every time you look at that table? We'll put about 25 holes in the top of that table. That's what we do with our words and our anger and things said. And when it comes to marriage or the family or the church, we are members of one another. 
Sinful wrath hurts everyone. Moreover, this kind of anger doesn't leave room for the judgment of God. Romans 12:19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We not only have to deal with our own anger, we also have to control how we respond to the anger of others. Oh, well, they said this and they did that. Well, the Bible has an awful lot to say about what you're supposed to do then, too. The fact that somebody else is sinning doesn't now give you a free pass. Well, he called me this or she said that. Yeah, well, what did you say in response? Did you turn the other cheek? Did you bless those who cursed you? Did you return a blessing instead of an insult? Well, no. That's not easy. No, it's not only not easy, it's impossible without the Spirit of God. You're Christians. You have special powers. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And then finally, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I titled the sermon today, Sundown. When are we to deal with anger? Sometimes people have been angry for years. Maybe you've been angry all week. Maybe you just got angry this morning when you got up. Well, when are you to deal with it? Before the sun goes down. Now, I don't want to be wooden about this. I do think there are times when a quarrel occurs late at night. and Everybody's had a hard day and a tired day, and maybe the best thing to do is to get some rest and deal with it first thing in the morning. So let me put it this way. Not letting the sun go down on your wrath does not mean that you can't let the sun go down on your dispute. You can say, you know, we're not making much progress. We're both tired. Um, let's settle down. Let's pray. Let's go to bed, and let's talk about this in the morning. So we're not going to be wooden with this. I don't think that's the point of it. The point of it's pretty obvious. We're going to keep short accounts. We're going to deal with this right away. Jesus gives us a similar kind of situation in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. If you bring your gift to the altar, you're coming to worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come make your offering. Keeping short accounts is essential to the long-term peace of marriage, family, and church. Matthew 5 says that you must go if you think you might have offended someone. And Matthew 18 says you must go if someone has offended you. You got it? If you, think, if you think you've offended someone, you go. If you think so, if someone's offended you, you go. You say, well, aren't they supposed to go too? Yeah, but they might not, and that's not really your concern. Your concern is that you do what God says for you to do, and don't wait for them to do what God says to do. Ideally, you should meet each other on the way. Hey, where are you going? I was coming to see you. Well, I was coming to see you. Work for a peaceful resolution to the problem. Turn the temperature down. That's what you do when somebody makes you mad. What am I supposed to do? Get mad? Stomp your foot? Slam the door? Throw yourself on the bed? 
I don't see any of that here. What are you supposed to do when someone makes you mad? Well, you can start by praying for them. Lord, I want to wring his neck right now. Please help me not to. Help me honor you in this situation. Amen. You can say all that in your head before God and he hears it and then do it. You say, yeah, but you don't have to live with him or her. or I know. You should have thought about that a long time ago. Okay? But right now you do. That's where God put you. And so, yes, you have to respond the way God says to respond. And so I'm going to just close with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. You may have a great struggle with yourself, but do not go to rest until you have settled it. You may have to argue it backwards and forwards. Go on, I say, until you have realized the love of God in Christ to you. Until you have seen Christ bleeding and dying on the cross that you might be forgiven. Dwell on it until he has melted your heart and broken you down and made you sorry for the one who has offended you and until you freely forgive. Then, but not until then, get into your bed and put your head down on the pillow and sleep the sleep of the just and the righteous and the holy because you have a right to do so. You will be doing you will be doing as the Son of God Himself did it. You will have acted in your life and domain as God Himself acted with respect to you. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious in your long suffering toward us. We have done much to deserve your just wrath, and yet your mercies are new each morning. However, we are often easily perturbed by others, and our anger not only rises up in our hearts and minds, but too easily flows out of our mouths. We are ready for revenge and quick to inflict our rage on others, to offer biting words and jabs and sarcasms, Our angry words roll off our tongues with ease. Teach us, O Lord, to show your patience and grace, to be wise and not speak as fools. Help us to not be easily offended, but charitable and kind. In anger, keep us from sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In Psalm 19, David offered up a prayer. It is perhaps one of the simplest yet most important prayers that we can pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. What a difference it would make if we all reminded ourselves of these words, all prayed this prayer before we spoke.
Not only in religious circumstances, in church, for example, not only when it's easy, but perhaps even more when we are just about to commit a sin of the tongue, especially when we're angry. So let's focus this week on refraining from sins of the tongue, on making sure our words are used for building up and not tearing down, of turning the temperature down and not turning it up. And let us focus right now as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's always a good thing to be focused on purifying our hearts and minds, but perhaps today we can renew covenant with God by focusing on being fresh followers of Jesus with our words. O God, most high, most glorious, your power knows no boundaries, nor your goodness any limitations. You bring order out of confusion, and our defeats are your victories. Let us live near to the great shepherd. Hear his voice, know its tones, and follow its calls. Keep us from deception by causing us to abide in the truth, from harm by helping us to walk in the power of the Spirit. Give us greater faith in the eternal truths, and let us never be ashamed of the truth of the gospel, that we may bear its reproach and vindicate its message. Lord, help us, for we are often lukewarm. Unbelief shakes our confidence, and sin makes us forget you. Let the weeds that grow in our souls be cut at their roots. Grant us to know that we may truly live only when we live for you. Your presence alone can make us holy, strong, and happy. Abide in us, O gracious God. Bless now our feast and our rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen.